This message is brought to you by Heartland Family Fellowship. Hi, my name is Steve Finney, and I will be your speaker today. We thank you for listening in on our podcast and hope that the Lord does bless you as you listen today. We want to welcome our online listeners. Our message this morning is titled Pathway to Deeper Life. This is part one. And uh, we want to thank all our new listeners who have just joined us. And we hope that you enjoy this series that we're going through, which is entitled The Art of Brokenness. I'm not sure when this series will get done, but as long as we keep speaking of life. The Exchange Life has lots of different titles. Can you guys remember some of the titles that are being used for The Exchange Life? The Normal Christian Life is what Watchman Nee used. The Indwelt Life. What did Hudson Taylor use? What term was that? The exchange life. A lot of people believe that the term exchange is not in the Bible, but actually the passage that Hudson Taylor's ministry was based on, which is now China Inland Mission, uh, was based upon an actual uh, verse that used in the original uh, text uses the word exchange. The term of not I or the phrase not I but Christ is that active process being revealed to us of the exchange that takes place it's not Steve Finney it's the life of Christ Ah, can't stop there it's not the life of Christ but the life of Christ that is in me which is not me and the life that I now live I live by the faith of the Son of God it's not even my own faith it's faith that's given to me So Christ is in me, and the life that I live now, I live by the faith of the Son of God who actually lives in me and is going to work through me. So it's not performing, it is responding. One is reacting, and the other is responding. Okay? Now, the disciples originally, like all of us, were not quite so humble. So it's easy to see the lack of humility in the disciples of Jesus Christ, but in seeing this more clearly, it will help us to appreciate the mighty change which Pentecost later manifested in them and helped prove how real our our participation can be in the perfect triumph of Christ's humility over the pride Satan had breathed into man on that horrific day in the garden. That is really the primary consequence that happened in the garden with Adam and Eve, both of them, was pride. I am better than you. See, that's what Satan was saying to God when he was in heaven, and he was basically saying, I want your job. When you say, I want someone's job, and you don't release them to do what it is they're supposed to do, you're saying, I am better than you. So he took that pride, and when he was cast to the earth, and then God created the garden, and you know the whole creation story, he's hanging out in this tree, and he lures Eve over there, and he's saying these funky things to Eve, like, you know, you can be like God. And know the difference between good and evil. Wouldn't that be cool? 
You see, it didn't work for Satan. He, anytime man expresses pride, you immediately activate the hand of God to do something. Because he's not going to share his glory with anyone until you become an indwelt Christian. Then we literally behold his glory. I mean, talk about a privilege. What was so special about Pentecost? Someone want to tell us? The first indwelling of the people. Okay, there's a trick question here, but it's not really a trick. It's more of a historical question. There are very, very few Christians that actually can answer the question, according to surveys, correctly anyway. Were the disciples Christians? Dan? They were following Christ. So the truest definition of Christian means Christ's follower. Now you can about imagine how much fun Satan decided to have with that word. As long as you are a follower of Christ, you are a Christian. You could be an American and sit in a pew and be following some Christian thought or Christ's thought. Now, if you run a term all the way into the end times, which is what I do with my research and writing, is I take a modern term and I run it all the way into the end times. And if we do that with Christian, you can easily see why this Satan is going to portray himself as a devil with blood dripping out of the corner of his mouth with a black hood. Are you kidding? This guy's going to be gorgeous. He's going to be beautiful. He is going to say, I am Christ. He's not going to say Jesus Christ because Jesus communicates something completely different. Jesus was, is the Messiah. Christ. Christ is a word for Messiah. So this guy's going to say, I am the Messiah. And do you think Jews are going to get fooled by this Messiah guy? You better believe they are. They're going to think that we've been waiting for you for a very long time. So everyone who heard Jesus speak from the moment he came out of that water, someone tell me what happened. As soon as his feet got up on the bank again of that river, Jordan, or Sea of Galilee, where was he? River Jordan, right? What happened to him? The Holy Spirit came down upon him and indwelt him. You'd think Jesus would be born with the Holy Spirit. No. You cannot minister until you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Do you understand that? If you do, you are a fake. Jesus could not ministry, go into his ministry, until the Holy Spirit came down upon him and indwelt him. 
Now, if Jesus had that require, requirement on him, what, where do we think we stand to think we don't need to be indwelt by the life of Christ in order to minister? Maybe if we just hear the preacher preaching about it, take a few notes and go practice it on Tuesday. That'll do it. Are you kidding? That's the group that Jesus was addressing called the Pharisees. They listened and did. They listened and did. They listened and did. They became doers of the word, but not beers of the word. Doing versus being who you are in Christ. Jesus Christ himself was required to go through these steps. Now we get baptized by the Holy Spirit, salvation, then we get dunked, and then we start ministering. Jesus went water, spirit, fire, whereas we go spirit, water, fire. You understand that? The earth had to go water, spirit, fire. The flood, Jesus Christ coming, spirit, and fire, we know what happens to this earth in the end. All of God's creation has to go through those three. It's the trinity of purification. Satan doesn't want people to figure this out. So he wants people to think in the church that if you just follow Christ, you are a Christian. Well, maybe you are a Christian, right, Dan? I mean, that's, that's a pretty good definition of Christian. A Christ follower. But I ask the question, where's Jesus? That's why I ask Christian leaders, particularly of Christian educational institutes, how come you won't use the term Jesus in your brochures? I, I want to know an answer to this question. Why not? The closer we get to the end times, the more we're going to hear, see, and experience the name of Jesus being dropped out of conversations. And the more we're going to hear about being Christ followers. So the great uh, switch, you know, I've told you some of the magician stories. I used to, you know, be an assistant to a, an illusionist years ago. And uh, told you some of the tricks that were done and, you know, whatever. It's kind of fun stuff. But basically he said, all you have to master is that the hand is quicker than the eye. Truth being said, Steve, is your hands are quicker than the mind. You get them entertained over here, and this hand comes in and does all the work. That's all being a magician is. That's it. Simple. Distracting the mind, coming in and doing your trick. That's what Satan does. He is the author and perfecter of the magi, the magicians. That's what he does. Trickery. Which craft crafting an illusion so all he has to do in the end times is do the old bait and switch I got the whole world doing the Christian thing so all I have to do is be the Christ and the majority of the entire world start falling down and worshiping this golden hair golden boy called the Christ Jews, Gentiles, Muslim, you name it, he'll claim it. That's what's going to happen. 
we must stick to appropriate biblical terminology. Use Jesus Christ in your conversation whenever you say the term Christ. When you see me printed on the screen, Christ Jesus, I am telling you, Messiah Jesus. Okay? When I say Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, it's more of a personal term. Kind of like a last name. Steve the Finney. Boy, that carries a lot of weight. <laughs> but that's, that's what we need to be doing. Terminology is very important. And understanding terminology is very important. Daniel Webster said, in order for us to manage the people of this great new world, we must come up with definitions for them. Daniel Webster. Dictionaries define pathways. Well, any good educator knows that one. <laughs> you can tell them everything you want to tell them, but if you don't give them the definitions of what you're telling them, it is fruitless. Here is our theme for today. Just a reminder for those who are listening, possibly just by audio, if you go back to the website, click on the download page, we have our, our uh, media library right there. You scroll down to the title of the message and click on the PDF and you can get a copy of these notes. So here's our theme. People with pride typically carve out their own pathway and passage of security. When they fail at doing this, they are quick to blame those around them for their laziness. You know these dads and moms, but dads are really good at it, they accuse their, their sons and daughters of being lazy. Monkey see, monkey do. Anytime you call someone a title, there's a good chance that title resides in your own soul. It's a way of getting rid of your pride that you're suffering with. It's to label people what you are actually suffering with. Judge not, brethren, at least you be judged in the same manner. That's why when a judgment comes out of your mouth, you better get to your knees rather quickly. Because the judgment's about to turn on you. You'll find yourself that day or the next day doing the exact same thing you just judged your child with. That's what pride does. All these rules and regulations that Satan's throwing out there for all of us Pharisee types is that he himself is breaking every one of them 24 hours a day. Now here's the positive. Humble people and broken, people of humility and brokenness are dependent and closely connected to the pathway of the deeper life that of Jesus carving out his way in and through them. And that, that has to, will only work for someone who's really dependent. So if you don't know what to do, where to go, whether turn left or right in, in a given situation in a, in a, in a day, is you, you, you call out to Jesus in you, not up there. When you're praying like this, you're not getting it. He's in here. Just talk. 
Just speak to the Lord as if because he is out here and in here. It's the most personal relationship any human could possibly have. Humble people depend on the pathway that Jesus is carving out through them. And Jesus had no clue of the pathway that was set before him by his father after the Holy Spirit fell upon him on that riverbank that day. So it took step-by-step step trust in this pathway that was laid out for him, not by his own agenda, pride, but by the agenda of a father figure, his father. So what is the number one arena that Satan attacks? Is the family. To destroy father-son, father-daughter relationships because this is how it works. And I don't know if you noticed, but Satan has done an incredible job and continues to do an incredible job of destroying relationships between fathers and their children. Okay, someone please tell me where this verse is found. Now I'm, gonna, I'm testing your Bible knowledge. And our online listeners, please send me an email because I want to know. There shall come a day when he will restore the hearts of the mothers to the children and the children to their mother, lest I come and smite their house or their land with a curse. I know that, that it's, that's got to be in the Bible somewhere. Well, modern youthage talk would say, not. Does anyone want to risk quoting the actual verse? Last verse in the Old Testament for those who are curious. And I know that it was man that canonized the Bible and that verse happened to be the last verse in the Old Testament. But I happen to believe that God was even in charge of the canonization process. And the last verse in the Old Testament says, There shall come a day when God, or he, through Elijah, will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. At least I come and smite the land with a curse. Land being interpreted in Hebrew as tribe, family. Because that's what defined a tribe was the land in which they stood upon or built their tents upon. Your family. How many destroyed families do we have in the world today? Under a hundred probably. Million. Billion. It's bad. It's, it's, a, it's a huge problem. So why? Tell me guys, why does God put such a big emphasis on daddies and their children? Exactly. I don't know of any verses that talk about God the mother. I know that's funny to a young, a young lad, but I was just in a two-hour email debate 
yesterday and the day before with a theologian on how upset he is that in, in my writings and my articles and whatever, and now he's listening to some of the audios, he's hearing me talk about the male masculinity of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. I said, are you aware there's a translation out there called NIV, the new one that has been printed in 2012 that's removed 3,680 masculine statements about God being masculine or Jesus being masculine, and in many cases, prophets being masculine. And he said that is because we don't want the word wounding women. I could not believe I finally heard it out of a theologian's mouth. We don't want the word wounding women because the, world is per, the word is predominantly male. Mankind. Manhood. Man-sinned. Man, man, man. They don't understand terminology. Could someone tell me what the opposite of a man is? Just say the word. The, the opposite of a man is a, a woman. What word is in the word? Latin always blesses us with the definition, with the word being in the word. What word is in that word? Man. The original spelling of woman was W-O-E dash, I'm putting the dash in, woe, man. What does woe mean? I'm, I know I'm really testing you this morning, but... <laughs> no, it's not trouble. It means weak. Man does not mean masculine. It's created being. It is a definition of what God created. Woe, man, is the weakest part of the man. When, when Eve fell asleep, I know you're not a woman, but when, when, when Adam was put to sleep and woman was taken from his side, he was actually, she was actually taken from the weakest part of his body. When I was learning karate, my sensei said, there is one surefire, surefire way to terminate this fight. It's not hitting him in, in places that you think would get a, a male, you know, to stop fighting. When that fist is coming across, so bring me a little fist here. Just When that fist comes at you, you snap the wrist off and you come in and you take out a rib. It's over. His lungs go kapooey. Everything starts failing within split seconds. Bam, snap, in, pull, out, it's done. It's not plucking out his eyeballs. It's not doing all this other kind of stuff. This is the weakest part of man. Whoa, right here. Woman was taken from man's weakness. It's not that she is weak. <laughs> I don't know very many weak women. It is man's weakness. To make him strong again, she must come under his side and he shall rule over you. The arm, the pinion, the wing. 
We are to come under the shadow of the opinion of God because that's His strength. We are <laughs> weak without being under and connected to His strength. This is not an insult by God in His creation. It is to reveal the actual relationship between Jesus Christ and His bride. Jesus too was pierced in His side. And the very fact that he was pierced in the weakest part of his body, it may have been tradition to find out the blood had separated from the water, but being pierced there was a significant and prophetic place to be pierced. The water and life of Jesus Christ is through his blood. This is very, very important for us to be able to get our arms around and able to embrace now let's take a look at this. Did you know that Satan is so blinded to truth that he thinks his failures are opportunities to try, try again? Did you ever say that when you were a kid? Maybe you're still saying it. If you first don't succeed, try, try again. That is a statement of the Pharisees. Don't accept failure. Failure will not touch my lips. If I first do not succeed, I will try and try again. Well, you know, that's not getting a lot of people into heaven. Many are on this pathway. Few are on the pathway that will admit they are failures and they're dependent. And Paul, being the greatest speaker ever known to the world during his life, he was the best of the very best Pharisees. He was the chief. God dumped him down to the point that he actually said this in the beginning of his writings. I do not come to you with persuasive words or speech, for I come to you trembling and unable to speak. I don't know if God gave him a stuttering problem, but he dumbed him down a lot. To where he would not even say he was a great communicator of the word of God. See, all that's pretension. God wants humility, brokenness, failures. God picked failures, if you haven't noticed. Very smart men, he dumbs them down, they become failures, living failures, walking failures, walking nobodies. He who thinks he's something is really something with God. Galatians 6.3 Euthanism says not. He who thinks he's something when he's nothing deceives himself. Well, let's put it in the proper terminology. He who thinks he's something when he's nothing is under the mind-willing power of Satan. Try try again. The only reason why I need to get up and try again is to get up and get on my knees. If I go down, I need to get up just far enough to be on my knees and plead with God for what he wants next. Here's the pathway of Jesus. I want to point out some very critical issues here of the parallel of the pathway of Jesus and the pathway that we're on. The event, of course, starts out 
for us with him. He is eternal past, present, and future. He always was. It wasn't dichotomy until creation or until he was born and then it became trichotomy. That's the easiest way I can explain to these guys that are such stuck on this dichotomous view. It doesn't even match the creation of God. It doesn't even match the image of the us. For we were created in the image of the us. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So it didn't start at his birth. He forever was, is, and shall be. Hebrews 13.8 So birth in Bethlehem for us is where we saw God become flesh to dwell among us. So we could behold his glory. Behold means splashed with it. You're like taking cold water on a hot day and you're splashing yourself. Beholding. And that's why the Hebrew symbol for beholding is two arms and a head. It's beholding or praising. So that's God saying, I want you all to behold my son. And then I'm going to bring him in the humility or in such a humble fashion because if you think he's a king, you're going to want him to show up with purple threads and you know, a whole host of people spoiling him and treating him like a king. But no, he's born in Bethlehem, which was a dumpy town, still is, and a dumpy hotel, wait, excuse me, barn, and, 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 all statements of humility. So his life needed to start, our Christianity needs to start with nothingness. But no, we shove people into ministry 15 minutes after they get saved and we start letting them minister and pretty soon because they're fun speakers or powerful communicators, we start giving them and spoiling them with spoils of ministry. Some ministries have gone as far as uh, one of my counselees was the limousine driver for uh, one of the world famous television evangelists and the stories that he told me would turn every one of our ears inside out. Horrible stuff like renting complete floors of, of high-end hotels because the pastor didn't want anyone on the floor he was staying on. Rolls-Royce, which was what he chauffeured. A different one in every town. And it went on and on and on and on from there. So you have that extreme, and then you have the, the Christians who just deserve to be treated better because they're Christians. Or they're in ministry. Then you have his childhood, which was a demonstration of Christ himself had to live under authority. Someone tell me how long again he stayed under his father's authority? His earthly father's authority? 30 years. So that whole 18 years of age thing, I'm not sure where they got that. Or where we get it. American Revolution is, I mean the uh, Industrial Revolution is what I heard, but 
It certainly was not the case with Jesus. By the way, that was not uncommon. He wasn't an unusual-looking homeschooler who can't leave the house. Seriously, that's what he looked like. This boy needs to get a life, at least a wife. So what have we done? We've written books and written new, the, you know, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which they made a movie, they made books out of it and whatever, about Jesus getting married to Mary Magdalene, you know, an ex-prostitute and, and blah, 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 and all this stuff and stories and rumors because he's a man and he needs a woman. Well, I'm here to tell you the reason why God created this earth, why God created Adam and Eve, why God told them to be fruitful and multiply. It's so a Hebrew father by the name of God the Father could come and pick the cream of the crop for his son to have a bride because Hebrew law, custom law, requires all firstborn males to get married. You think God created all of this just so he could have a few glory glories on a given day? You're not understanding the purpose of creation. Yes, Jesus needed a woman. In the video clip that we showed you starting the service today, how did that end? By Jesus lifting the veil like he did in the temple that day on that crucifixion, lifting the veil and kissing his bride. So why do we do save the kiss for the altar? Why do we do the virgin story and bringing it into our families for our daughters? Why do we try to keep family integration tech, techniques, principles, and keep that alive? It's because it needs to replicate the marriage of our Savior. Perfectly if it can, which is impossible for us humans. But no, we make fun of this. Jesus, obviously being a backward social boy who is still with his mommy at the age of 30, goes into the water and gets himself baptized. You think she understood all that stuff because she had the Son of God living in her household? I guarantee you she didn't understand. Because Jesus himself does not get understanding until his father gives it to him. That's why he had to go to these mountain trips regularly, if you remember. He had to go away to be with his father so the father could give him the next little piece. Why do we need fathers in our life? For the next little piece. You don't have a father in your life, you're in trouble. Because you'll have to figure it out. It's a system that God put in place to help us with our pathway to deeper life. This is so critical. Jesus was not a homely homeschooler. He was functioning under the absolute perfect will of the heavenly father through his earthly father by grinding on a piece of wood and making furniture for the local community until his earthly father passes away because God was never going to put Jesus in the position of serving two masters. And to Jesus, master means father. We think it's some cultish term now. It means father. So Joseph had to die, and why did Jesus have to look down even from the cross and say, John, his beloved disciple, and say, John, 
Meet your mother. Mother, meet your son. Now, when I was an immature Christian, I kind of thought, that is really kind of stupid. I'm sorry, Jesus. That just, why did you say that? These two knew each other. John's entire life. He was passing the authority because Jesus took the position as the supervising son over his mother. And he was passing that. That was one of the last things that Jesus did before he took his last breath is to say, John, you are now in my position of caring for my mother. Now what do we do? We send them off to nursing homes and let them die. We have it all backwards. Anything Jesus put, Father, put in Jesus' pathway is so incredibly significant. But we're so busy having to educate ourselves to educate people about what they need to get educated about, we are ignoring the heritage of wisdom that sits before us. Our fathers. So the children have to run around acting like spoiled, rotten children. And we do. So John got the message. Jesus is giving me the rite of passage to supervise his mother, which is now not his mother, which is now my mother. We have children that call us mom and dad who are not of us blood-wise, but we handle them exactly like our children. We have a lot of kids, more than three girls. And we take that role seriously, and so do they. Fathers, the fathers that are listening, if you're unreconciled with your children, go get reconciled. If those kids refuse to be reconciled, stay on your knees, praying, believing, so that your land is not cursed. If you think that only applies to the Old Testament, you don't understand the Old Testament. Maybe you should read the book of Revelation. See how much land gets cursed in the New Testament in the end. Because fathers refuse to go humble or children refuse to go humble. So then, Jesus gets released to minister. He has three and a half years of ministry. At the end of those three and a half years, he's still responsible for his mom. She, she went with him everywhere. Why? Because he was responsible for her. And those very last seconds where here he is, you know, he, he literally became sin. He didn't die on the cross for our sins. He became sin and then died for us. And here he is with the whole weight of past, present, and future on his shoulders. And he stops and goes, John... Take care of mom. Mom, meet your new son. You know one of the questions I had for Jesus? How come you didn't give that responsibility to James? Jesus' half-brother. I don't know if you guys thought that, but that went through my head. And I believe God has answered me. 
You only give that responsibility to a son, whether they are your natural son or your spiritual son, you only give that responsibility for the one who knows the heart of the one who has to carry it. I look outside our family for caring for Jane just as much as I look inside our family for caring for Jane and Jess. Hard concept to understand? Maybe you should take a trip to the cross. Jesus only imparted responsibility to those who were on the exact same pathway. Was John there or was he down at the local bar? Or was he on the edge of the hill not wanting to associate with this radical on the tree? No, he was right there suffering in his own way with Christ Jesus because he was in the pathway of Jesus Christ. This is real discipleship, folks. We start giving responsibility to people without the heart issue and they're simply going to become betrayers and turn on you. And that's why Jesus had to look at Judas, one of the disciples. Many people believe he was a very faithful disciple in being when he started out. Fact is, Jesus looks at him and says, do what you must do. Jesus knew. It, it was already in his mind. He, he was going to do it. Just do it and be done with it. And he did. He gets over to the garden. He gets over to the garden. Oh, first, we, he goes and he demonstrates power. He reveals the needs of workers. Or he unfolds why he is here. And then preaches unbelievable sermon. The Sermon of the Mount is Jesus revealing his primary attitudes. The Greek word for attitude is mind. Jesus is revealing his mind, his beliefs in the Sermon on the Mount. So he's given us his mind, his values, what he believes. They weren't to do so they could get. He's revealing his mind. And then demonstrating he had power over, over uh, nature. He uh, feeds the 5,000, confirming that he has the power to feed you when you have nothing in the cabinets. Our family has been there many times. God can feed you with nothing. He can take nothing and breathe something into the nothing whether it's your checkbook or whether it's fishies. All of substance, all of spirituality obeys him. It's a good lesson to learn on the pathway. See, these disciples had to experience every one of these little things. You think the blind guy and the beggars and the, all these guys were accidental and they're just, you know, kind of like busying up his ministry? I can assure you, and I know this will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ himself, scriptures have proven it, that every single thing, every single person, every single weakness, every single slap, every single spit, 
everything was ordained by the living Father. And Jesus had this sense that there's something coming that's a whole lot bigger than what I've had to deal with so far. It was always rumbling within him. Something's going to be required of me. Did he know the pathway of the cross? No, he did not. And I know there's some that are insulted by that statement because he was God. He went to his father daily and God revealed the plan for that hour. God loves dependence. And he even required it out of God, the son. Dependence. So Jesus could say these words that we use so flippantly, and that is, for I do nothing on my own initiative, but only on the initiative of my, of my Father. For I say nothing that is not the words of my Father. For whatever you see me do, it is not I who does it, but it is my Father doing it. Well, we use those words like there's some kind of flippant, isn't that cute? No, Jesus was desperately dependent on his daddy, his Abba. He needed moment by moment, hour by hour instructions. But no, we think we can do it on our own. Bummer. He walks on water. Nothing binds or holds him. I, I actually had that explained to me by a pastor friend of mine. He was killed in a gun accident, but he challenged me one time. He said, Steve, do you realize the science in this story? Molecules obeying God and holding up molecules that are supposed to be heavier and pressed through and have him drown. That every molecule, the reason why, he said, do you realize that this chair is filled with airspace? And I didn't know it up, up to that point. He said, all substance, if you zoom in and keep zooming in and keep zooming in, you're going to see all this space between the molecules. And those molecules are obeying, staying in perfect position so that someone can actually sit on the chair. The science of even molecules obeying the Father. Stay together, don't fragment, don't move around, don't do your own thing. Just stay there obediently in sets of three. Just stay there because Ian's going to sit on you. That's how water works. That's how Jesus' feet works. It's amazing. <coughs> so even molecules to adjust themselves so that Jesus could walk on water either in his body or, his, or the water. It's a miracle. Miracles are a little above man. Stay with me. Miracles are a little above man. Creation. Humility is a little less than man. And I think you can make the connection from there. Transfiguration God's, shows God is well pleased with the sun. Heals the blind, reveals the reason for weakness. Remember Peter saying to Jesus, For what reason is there that this man shall be blind? Let's all gather together and get him out of the way. He's just messing up the ministry. 
Remember when they tried to keep the kids from him? Jesus was in, interested in a family integrated service here. And the kids would come and they were really interested in this guy, you know, because he was just friendly. You know, it was kind of like, probably like Walt. You know, kids just loved him, whatever, and they're kind of flocking around, you know. And, uh, and the disciples are concerned about the ministry. So they're trying to chase the kids away, and Jesus says, Suffer not these little ones from coming unto me. That's a little family integration uh, advertisement. But here we have it. Unbelievable. Jesus Christ showing us through Peter's question, what is the reason for this weakness? What is the reason for this handicap? What is the reason for this guy not having arms and legs? What is the reason for his leprosy? You fill in the blank. And Jesus basically said, what? Does anyone remember? The glory of the Lord. That the glory of God may be shown to you. You think God cared about whether that man could see or not? Probably not. Do you know how many didn't get the big blessing? Do you know how many people today don't get the big blessing of healing from some physical ailment? No, that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is that the glory of God may be seen. So our lives need to be lived in such a way that the glory of God may be seen. When we were on, in our uh, African trip, remember this, Abby? Is that after we were done preaching, we had a bunch of people come up to us. In fact, our missionary tour guy, uh, who is, uh, his dad was discipled by Hudson Taylor. Just thought I'd throw that little piece in there. Africa Inland Mission. And uh, they told us to keep 10, 15 pins on us at a time. And we're like, what? So we brought a great big bag, you know, of pins, ministry pins. And every time we go out, we'd have several of these stuck in our pocket, not knowing what is going to happen here, of course. We were done preaching one time, and these men flocked up around us, and they all wanted a pen, something we actually wrote with. So, you know, we'd take the pen out, and we'd give them the pen, you know, and they would look at this pen like it had some kind of special anointing on it. You see, they took literal the power of God passing through napkins. Remember when they took a napkin from Paul? And people were healed by it? They take the word of God literally. Not in America, I'm afraid. That's why a pen is either Bic or, you know, some other... It's just a pen. So then parables of the Good Samaritan proves the actions of the indwelt. You can go help a, act like a Good Samaritan, but the truth being said, unless Christ in you is doing it, it's just good works. Parable, parable of the prodigal, significant event, the gospel story, in the Father, in the Son, the whole thing I spelled out for you today is in that one story. Why aren't there passages about mothers having their hearts restored to their children? Because it's ridiculous. If the order of service stayed intact the way it's supposed to stay intact, and a woman was one with her husband, she would be one as 
her husband. Please stay with me on this. If she's one with her husband, God will treat the two of them as one. So when children are reconciled with the head of the home, they are reconciled with their mother. I don't know why that's complicated. I have some guesstimates on what's happened in society is to have two heads in the home, like a two-headed dragon. Which one do I listen to today? That's why I said to this guy yesterday, do you know he used this whole term of co-heirs of the grace of God? He says, do you realize that as an American and as, I won't use our present president because we're not quite sure, but the past president who was an American, we are co-heirs as Americans. Right? But I'm not president. We could have a president, vice president, both of them can claim to be co-heirs of America, but it doesn't mean the vice president can start barking out orders that the president's responsible for. It works in government. It works in CEOs. It works in... But when it comes to marriage for some reason, it doesn't work. They want two heads. 50-50. Plurality. And it's completely messed our church up. Our world. Lazarus being raised from the death, snapshot of resurrection of Christ's body. The gospel of thanksgiving through the ten leopards. Only how many came back and said thank you, sir? One. That's how it's going to be in the end times. Out of ten people who say they got saved, only one really got saved. Salvation is proven through thanksgiving. It is one of the first courts you have to enter before you get into the temple. The courtyard of thanksgiving. Those are the ones we know for sure are saved. It's demonstrated in the, the ten lepers. All of them experienced a miracle. But one came back and said, Sir, you truly are the Son of God. Thank you. Well, if Jesus didn't say it, it was certainly said without words. For this day, you too shall see me in the kingdom of God. Gospel being like children, demonstrating rejoicing while waiting, remove, uh, the clear, clearing the temple removes people who use Christ for gain. That's kind of a problem today, isn't it? That's why I refuse to charge for a book, a manual, a video, an audio because it's exchanging money for a product of Christ that's what got him all upset that day do you know what the average price of a Bible was 10 years ago $67 now because of the online Bibles and there's a lot of competition out there you can get a pretty good one for about 30 What are we doing charging people for the word of God? I just don't get that. I'm sorry. I don't care if it's got leather on the outside or not. They used to carve these things on leather, page by page. But you see, we have become twisted. We have become like the people in the courtyard selling trinkets. 
Little cross necklaces, watches with crosses on them, tattoos. See my tattoo of the cross? You know, whatever. All this that Jesus did is clearly laying out the pathway for us in a deeper life. Thank you for joining us today. Heartland Family Fellowship is a local church plant here in Sterling, Kansas. Our fellowship includes the family and all levels of worship. Our mission is to bring families back together spiritually, relationally, and physically. Many people ask us, what does that really mean, or how does it benefit them? Well, it means that you can bring your entire family to any of Heartland's events. And we will work to keep the focus on God, Jesus Christ, and the body of Christ without dividing up the family at the front door. If you're interested in learning more about our fellowship or other family integrated fellowships, please log on to our website. That is www.heartlandfellowships.org. We thank you for joining us. Get yourself in a bind, lose a shirt off your back. Need a floor, need a couch, need a bus fare.